Hello, folks. This is your host, Tammy Tucky, and you are now listening to the Tierra Talk Show. We bring you rare interviews with the makers of Disney magic. Whether they be singers, actors, Imagineers, animators, they have all made their mark on the Disney name. Be sure to check out the show notes, other episodes, contests, our social media pages from Facebook to Twitter, and more on our official website at www.thetierratalkshow.com. All guest opinions are theirs and theirs alone and do not represent the opinions of the Tierra Talk Show or the host. The Tierra Talk Show is not associated with the Disney Company. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. And from all of us here at the Tierra Talk Show, have a hoop de doo day. I'm excited to welcome this week's Tierra Talk Show guest, filmmaker Ted Thomas, to the show. Welcome, Ted. Hey, it's great to be with you. It really is great to have you on the show. And before we go into some of the Disney credits that you have, I thought we'd talk about your beginnings, you know, being involved in Hollywood and seeing it as a kid. You know, what was it like to to be surrounded by such a, such a different time period for Hollywood, especially because a lot of our listeners probably know you as the son of Frank Thomas, who was one of Walt Disney's original nine old men. So you probably had a different experience with the entertainment industry than most of our guests. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. Uh, when you grow up inside the garden, uh, you really don't know that anything's different than that outside it. And it's, <laughs> it's only like when you grow up and, and you leave and or you move away, uh, that you realize that the way you grew up was a little bit different than other people, or in many cases, were was very special, like, uh, you know, growing up, I, I got to meet, well, you know, famous celebrities like, uh, oh, Harold Lloyd, the, the silent film comedian, and uh, John Wayne, and uh, uh, Louis Armstrong, and, you know, that there are people that my father worked with or, or knew, and uh, so, you know, I'd be with him and get introduced to them, and uh, They were people who were entertainers, and so you got to know the world of entertainment, and uh, everybody's there to do a job, just like everybody else has a job to do, you know, so in that case, it was special, but not so special. It must have been such a unique experience to meet Walt Disney in person for the first time and and still be able to see him on various occasions. Well, it was, uh, you know, even though my father spoke about him every night at the dinner table, it was still a special deal to meet him, you know, and and if we were walking uh, in the animation building on the third floor and we walked by 3H, you know, the, the wing that was where Walt had his office, it was down this hallway. Uh, and being a kid, it just looked like a long tunnel with something special at the end. I didn't know what it was because you couldn't see it, but that's that's Walt's office. Even at that age, it was something special. So what inspired you to enter the entertainment industry after being such a constant observer for so long? Well, it's really interesting. You know, when I grew up, it wasn't uncommon to want to do something different than what your father did. And... Uh, I was not. I was not going to go into film at all. At first, I was interested in psychology, and then I was interested in anthropology, and and that actually was my major in college. 
Um, but I had the opportunity to have a study abroad program, uh, and I spent a year in India, and I did a lot of photography, and I got to do a little bit of uh, you know motion picture taking, and uh, I got the bug, and I realized uh, this is what I would like to do, you know, particularly if I can combine uh, photography and filmmaking with the anthropology. That would be fantastic. And uh, I saw this film by the, uh, the, the wonderful uh, filmmaker who taught at Harvard, Robert Gardner. It was a film that he made in New Guinea called Dead Birds. And uh, that just, you know, turned on a light for me. And from that moment on, I wanted to be a filmmaker. One of your first projects was Where the Toys Come From from 1984. And like I vaguely remember this. I really couldn't find anything online, like more visuals of the project itself. But I remember seeing this at some point. But would you mind describing the project for listeners who probably haven't gotten a chance to see it? Yeah, sure. It was a, it was a lot of fun to make. The way it came about uh, was that... Uh, this was the, the very first year that the Disney Channel was up and running. And there was a, um, a weekly show called uh, the Disney Studio Showcase. And uh, what it was was the studio selected filmmakers who were all either affiliated, affiliated with or were already working at the studio uh, and would give them a, a modest budget and say, uh, make a dream project, make anything you'd like to make. And they had, uh, uh, at that time, one of the animators was Tim Burton, I think you've heard of. Uh, and so he got to make uh, his version of uh, Hansel and Gretel. And uh, Harrison Ellenshaw, the, the great effects artist uh he got to make his version of little red riding hood and uh they came to me and said uh we've seen a couple of the documentaries you've made and we wonder if you'd like to make a documentary about how toys are made and uh i thought about it and uh, i said well uh, you know what i'd really like to do is uh make a a film that uh, gives you the feeling of what it of the the toys give you, you know, when you play with them. So I'd like to do a fantasy that incorporates some documentary elements. Would you go with that? And they said, mm, well, tell us a little bit more how you do it. And and while you're at it, why don't you come in and and uh, take a look at at the wind up toys that uh, John Lasseter has in his room because John Lasseter was animating at that time too. So I went into John's room, and I saw all these wind-up toys, and I immediately uh, started seeing some hero characters, you know, to a couple of wind-up toys who could carry a story, because it all comes down to the eyes, basically. And uh, so uh, I went home and, and cooked up a script and uh, took in a bunch of these wind-up toys from Tommy Toys, and Tom Wellhite, who was head of production, gave me a green light, and away we went. Uh, so we made it with uh, the help of the, the Tommy Toy Company to sort of uh, pad out the budget a little bit, and it was uh, a great experience. Got a wonderful actor, Saab Shimono, uh, to play the uh, toy designer, and 
a, a young girl named Erin Young to, to play the part of the, the little girl, and then uh, pulled in other people to do voice acting. And uh, a lot of people thought it was stop motion, but uh, what we did really was uh, a lot of out-of-frame stick work with the, uh, the toys, and then we modified a few toys that if you wound them up, they would take a precise number of steps and hit a mark. And uh, we also used a, a newly invented uh, lens that uh, a fellow had adopted, adapted from uh, medical work so we could do uh, extreme close-up stuff and sort of pea shooter moving through objects. Uh, so to get down right on the level with the, the wind-up toys. And uh, we shot in the U.S. here in L.A., and we shot in Japan, and we shot in Singapore. And uh, it went on the, the Disney Channel as where the toys come from. And then uh, something I never knew until years later was that uh, one sequence, well, there were several musical sequences, and some of them were excerpted as... Uh, uh, interstitial pieces that the channel ran in between programs. You know, when one program isn't quite long enough to fill out the hour or something, they'll stick a little segment in there. And uh, portions of where the toys come from got played for years. And so I go on the internet and I find out that there's a whole group of people who like grew up with uh, Peepers and Zoom, the two hero characters <laughs> from where the toys come from. And then from there, as a filmmaker, you decide to make a documentary on your dad and one of his very good friends, Ollie. So Frank and Ollie comes out around 1995. And I had never even heard about this one for a long time until about maybe three years ago. This was such a treat for me to find this film and, and watch it. And I have the special edition copy of the DVD. So I love the behind the scenes extras you put on it. But uh, this film, you know, how did you kind of get the ball rolling? Did you just ask your dad and Ollie? if it was okay to go ahead and start shooting and, and ask them if they would be interested in, in talking about their friendship over the years? Yeah, and they didn't want to do it. <laughs> they didn't believe that uh, they were interesting enough to carry a 90-minute long movie. And uh, it took a while to convince them um, that uh, they were and that I had an idea about how to do it. It's like when when I was growing up with them, uh, it, was, it was my dad and Uncle Ollie, because uh, they, you know, live next door to each other. And um, it's like what I said earlier, it's like growing up in the garden, you didn't realize that it was so different or so special. In fact, it wasn't until after they retired that... Uh, and started writing books together that I began to feel that, you know, there's so many similarities that they have. And also it's it's so unusual that the, the way that they work with each other, the chemistry they have. And they've been friends longer than most people are married, you know. They, they met when they were 19 years old. And from that time onward, they were either... Uh, roomed in the same boarding house or shared an apartment together or lived next door to each other and they carpooled to work and so I began to think surely that must have affected their work you know the way they worked on their individual scenes with each other because when I first started working uh, at Disney's in the 70s when I was right out of college uh, I carpooled with them they were kind enough to let me 
sit in the back seat. And I got to listen to them twice a day talk shop. And it's just like listening to two great actors preparing to play a scene. Uh, you know, they, on the way to work in the morning, they would talk about what, what it was they were going to do or what their problems were or what they were trying to work out. And on the way home, they'd talk about how the day went and what they might have done differently and how they might gear up for what they were going to do the next day. And, and this back and forth that they had, I began to feel must have had an impact on the, 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 the way that they worked and the way that they stimulated and inspired each other. So that became the premise for the film. And it didn't take so very long to get that idea or to finally convince them to do the picture. But it did take a very long time to navigate all the, uh, the maze of permissions that I had to get from Disney in order to go ahead with the project um, because uh, I wanted to use what was essentially the crown jewels in, in the film vault and uh, they had never gotten behind a documentary like this before. Um, you know, as you said, from about 2000 onward, there have been a number of films, but at the time I made it, um, I had the, <laughs> you know, I had the unenviable position of, of breaking new grounds, doing something that nobody had ever done before. And uh, finally, uh, Roy Disney uh, was sort of my uh, guardian angel in um, s saying that this is a project that ought to go forward. But, uh, you know, we made it independently. We didn't make it with uh, any studio involvement or any studio coin. Um, but the, the quid pro quo for having access to the material was that um, they would then buy it as an acquisition uh, and own it lock, stock, and barrel. But we got to make this wonderful movie where we basically uh, captured that magic between Frank and Ollie and put it in a bottle and put that on the screen. And the film's still available. I'm, I'm very proud of that, that it's an evergreen in the, the, the Disney library. So, you know, if you have uh, Disney Go or, or uh, is that what they call it? Disney On Demand. Or uh, if you have uh, Netflix, you can order it up, or it's still available for purchase. So uh, I'm very, very happy that it's still around, and it still plays really well. And I thought it was really interesting also with the fact that they are probably among the top three pairs in the Disney company. We have Richard and Robert Sherman, Walt and his brother Roy, and mm. Ollie and Frank. And mm. all three of them have their own documentaries, of course. And it, it's really interesting to see those dynamics. And with Frank and Ollie, I, I, I personally observe that they just get along so well together. There is just no negativity in anything they do. And they're just so happy to be with each other all the time. They don't get tired of one another. <laughs> well, you know, we, we took the film around on the, the film festival circuit. And during one uh, Q&A, a guy said, I, I just don't, I find it unbelievable that uh, these two guys get along and never fight. And I said, I know, isn't it unbelievable? They had another way of putting it. They said, well, you know, uh, a gentleman doesn't need to be disagreeable in order to disagree. So it, it, that's the generation that they came from. And they understood each other, uh, their strengths, and more importantly, their weaknesses, so well uh, 
um, that they were able to make room for one another because they knew that uh, with the back and forth they had, better ideas would come about. You know, it was like Ollie would be so terrific at getting um, uh, the lightning bolt inspiration, I'd like to say. And Frank was so good at sort of nurturing it and uh, exploring different ways that it could be developed or uh, saying, well, that's a good beginning, but what if we did this or that? And then Ollie was really good at coming back and saying, oh, I don't know, that feels a little, uh, that doesn't have enough heart in it. You know, that feels a little too heady. You know, what can we do to make it more down to earth? You know, the, both of those guys in person were also so incredibly down to earth. I mean, there's nothing uh, high key or edgy or intimidating uh, about either one of them. Uh, and yet both both of them, I think, were, were geniuses and had a passion for uh, art and animation and uh, felt that the potential of animation was, had just been scratched. You know, that they felt that there's so much more that, that could still be done with it. And so even in their 80s um, and after they both turned 90, if they met anybody who showed an interest in the art and the craft, uh, they would give freely of their time to them and, and start a conversation as, a, as an equal because they had met somebody who uh, was a fellow traveler. You know, each of the nine old men had a, a particular strength, but uh, Frank and Ollie in particular, I think, put the feeling into the acting um, of so many poignant scenes that are, you know, they're really standout high points of the, the classic films. And, you know, after they retired, they began writing uh, to, to share their knowledge. Um, so it, it didn't leave the planet with them. Um, and I think that that has been an accomplishment uh, as great as the, uh, the filmmaking that they did, because they've been able to share with generations now um, the key elements of the craft and the philosophy of um, how to go beyond uh, what they did. You know, I don't think anybody has surpassed the level of acting that they brought to the screen. But they certainly showed the way uh, for many fine animators today of how to do it, you know, the path to follow, uh, to create the sort of uh, moving, sincere scenes that I think are hallmarks of what make Disney films uh, stand apart. Pixar, too, because I think... Um, John Lasseter and, and Joe Ramp and uh, uh, Pete Docter and Brad Bird really, really understand what it was Frank and Ollie were trying to do. The, the uh, past few years, I've been working on uh, my father's papers. You know, the time has finally come to organize this mountain of uh, artwork and writing and articles and uh, correspondence that he left behind. So I've turned my energies to that and, and out of that have uh, sprung several ideas of things I, I want to do. 
at least two or three uh, book projects and, and maybe a film or two also. We'll see. Whenever you have a new film or book ready, we would love to have you back on the show to talk about it because I, I just really admire your work. So, you know, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. <laughs> It'll be a pleasure, Tammy, really. And before we end, I have three Disney-themed questions I ask each of our guests. I call them the Fab Three. So we'll start with the Donald one, which is, as a child, what Disney film was one of your favorites to see in the movie theater? Wow. Well... You know, when I was quite young, uh, it was uh, Lady and the Tramp. And uh, then when I was a bit older, I really liked The Jungle Book. And, uh, of course, I'm a boomer, so I'm old enough that, you know, when these pictures came out, they were only in the movie theater. No home video. And our goofy question, what Disney character do you think would be your best friend if you met them in person? Maybe Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> I could use a conscience. <laughs> and our Mickey question, if I asked you to name any Disney song at this very moment, what immediately comes to mind? Well, two just popped into my head. Is that, is that okay? Absolutely. Go ahead. <laughs> the first one is The Bare Necessities. And then the second one is, a, is an oddball one, but it's a second star to the right. Well, thank you again for coming on the show, Ted. This has been a lot of fun, and I really hope we have you back on to discuss some hopefully exciting new projects. Look forward to it, Tammy. Thanks a lot. Your ways, Your Majesty. Yes, my child. <laughs>